Imagine 95 senators trying to out-talk Huey Long, Will Rogers wrote in 1933. Huey had lost patience with the United States Senate, which was okay. They were fed up with his antics too, and he had only been a senator for a year or so. They wanted no part of his wealth redistribution plan, loud suits, cigars, and complete lack of personal boundaries. Huey could talk the sun down every day, but his ideas were never going to be made into law. A mob is coming to hang the other 95 of you scoundrels, he warned his Senate colleagues, and I'm undecided whether to stick here with you or go out and lead them. It turns out that Huey wasn't really that undecided. He wasn't doing any better getting on the good side of the new president. When anyone eats with Huey, Franklin Roosevelt said, it had better be with a long spoon. FDR took his own advice and put distance between himself and the senator from Louisiana. The new president didn't want any help from Huey, who stepped over the line by making a radio address implying that the president supported his wealth redistribution plan. FDR also didn't consult Huey when it came to appointments to federal jobs in Louisiana. Being able to distribute federal patronage translated directly into votes and power. With the Depression in full swing, these jobs were literally lifesavers, and the president made sure most of them went to Huey Long's political opponents. The people of the state also got a lifeline. At the end of FDR's first year in office, 326,000 Louisianans received welfare checks or had federal jobs. By 1935, 70,000 residents of New Orleans had federal jobs and 42,000 more were spread throughout the state. And it was clear that it was the president, not their senator, who brought all this good fortune home. Huey saw that his power over the state was under threat. He attacked the administration on the Senate floor saying, they can take all my patronage and go to, well, they can keep all my patronage. He suggested that Louisiana should secede from the union to break the administration's power over the state. The president invited Huey to the White House on July 1933 for a meeting. Huey demanded control over federal patronage in Louisiana, tapping the president's knee with his hat as he made his points. Roosevelt listened passively, but did not yield. Huey was livid. He's so goddamn smart, the first thing I know, I'll be working for him, and I ain't going to. Huey Long only worked with people when he held all the cards. The only person in his view with more power than him was FDR himself, and that wasn't something Huey was going to be able to handle for too long. His opponents at home were emboldened by the fact of a new power broker in the state and increased their attacks. Hilda Phelps Hammond, a committed enemy of Huey's, formed an organization called the Women's Committee of Louisiana. She and her fellow members sold their household items to fund a campaign with one goal, to beat Huey Long. She went to Washington to deliver a petition to the vice president to remove Huey from the Senate and hired a law firm to investigate his shady dealings. Huey's other enemies in the state, including former governors, joined the crusade. As usual, when Huey was under threat, he became more erratic. In August 1933, Huey went to a ball at the Sands Point Country Club, a haven for millionaires, mob bosses, and movie stars. He got drunk, flirted with women, used racial slurs, and apparently got into a fist fight in the men's room. The anti-long newspapers picked up the disgraceful episode and broadcast it all over Louisiana. Cracks started to appear in Huey's approval rating among the common folk of the state. His behavior was characterized as unchivalrous, crude, and cowardly. Attendance at his speeches dropped, and he was openly heckled about the Sands Point incident. His attacks on President Roosevelt weren't winning him any points either. 
The president was enormously popular in the South, and his policies were starting to make some headway against the ravages of the Great Depression. People started to worry that Huey's opposition to the New Deal would mean that federal aid would go somewhere other than Louisiana. Huey had never faced such unpopularity, and according to one newspaper man, can't get to first on his own diamond. Populist leaders draw their oxygen from public approval and support. Without it, they start to wither. This is what happened to Theodore Roosevelt in 1912 when he fought William Howard Taft for the Republican nomination after promising not to run for the White House again. For the first time in his political life, Teddy was unpopular and even shunned by the party and people who had once carried him aloft on their shoulders. It made him alternately enraged and embittered, and these unfamiliar feelings caused him to make serious political missteps. The same thing happened to Huey Long in late 1933. In October, Huey published his autobiography, Every Man a King. After it was rejected by publishers, he started his own publishing company and printed 100,000 copies. He priced the book at a dollar a copy in hopes of increasing sales. Of the 100,000 printed, only about 20,000 sold. When his friend Will Rogers complained that his own books were not selling, Huey laughed. Why don't you do what I did, he told Rogers. Give them away. By the end of 1933, Huey had lost important political alliances, including the one he had made with the most powerful men in New Orleans. Anti-long candidates started to win statewide elections again. Elections had been about only one question, whether you were for Huey Long or against him. In the 1934 New Orleans mayoral race, Huey got personally involved attacking the mayor in speeches and tampering with voter registration rolls. This behavior, along with his opposition to the Roosevelt administration, helped the mayor win his race against Huey's chosen candidate. He was losing control of Louisiana, and people were starting to see it. So Huey went back to the national stage. Even though his Senate colleagues avoided him like a smallpox epidemic, he entered his share of the wealth plan into the congressional record. As he lost ground in his home state, other poor Americans started to look at his plan as a way out of their plight. He offered pensions for Americans over age 65, cutting working hours to 30 per week and free college. Economists ridiculed his plan. Walter Lippmann of the New York Herald Tribune said the plan was not bread for the hungry, but a stone. This is not water for the thirsty, but a mirage. Huey formed share our wealth societies across the country. There were no dues, so poor people could join. His popularity throughout the country soared. He received 60,000 letters a week in his Washington office, more than all the other senators combined. If Louisiana didn't love him anymore, Huey would go woo the rest of the country. We couldn't keep train wrecks on the tracks without you. Please visit support.historytrainwrecks.com for all the ways you can help keep train wrecks on the tracks. This new national popularity revitalized him and he was able to stop the mental freefall that all that unpopularity had caused. He realized that he still controlled the Louisiana legislature and owned the governor's office. He was having trouble getting his candidates to win elections, but he could still get laws passed. He started with an attack on New Orleans, removing a $700,000 appropriation for road work in the city and taking away the city's power to grant liquor licenses. Then he moved on to taking over the state's election apparatus. He picked his own state election supervisors and took control of ballot boxes away from the parish sheriffs and gave it to his men. He pushed for a constitutional amendment to repeal the poll tax, 
which added 300,000 poor whites to the polls. These were most likely to support Huey and his candidates. Rural whites were known to pray at night to Jesus, Joseph, Mary, and Huey Long. As it turns out, there were lots of ways to win elections. Huey kept ramming bills through the legislature to his pal O.K. Allen's desk and signing pen. He used a tactic where he would add amendments to bills at the end of the day's session, right before the vote. Some of these amendments were hundreds of pages long. The clerk would read only a few sentences of these vast additions before the votes were called. Not realizing that major amendments had been added, the legislators voted essentially on their way out the door to go home. On one notable occasion, Huey used this ploy to remove the entire city government of Alexandria, where he had once been hit with eggs during his speech. The New York Times reported, Senator Huey P. Long became de facto dictator of this state and immediately began acting the part. The president of Louisiana State University told a group of students, disgruntled at Huey's censorship of their student newspaper, we're living under a dictatorship and the best thing to do is to submit to those in authority. He said he would dismiss the entire faculty and 4,000 students before offending the Louisiana senator. In August 1935, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover ordered daily telegraphed reports from his agents about Huey and his cohorts. Hoover believed that Louisiana has given the senator, through the state administration, dictatorial powers, including complete dominance of election machinery and officials. Hoover's reports went directly to the White House. FDR ordered his Secretary of the Treasury to investigate the tax returns of Huey and his closest allies. Indictments and convictions for tax evasion were handed down on some of the men who had gotten rich from Huey's patronage. By September 1935, the investigations reached the Kingfish himself. The Attorney General reviewed the evidence against Huey and agreed to present it to a grand jury. Huey kept going, resurrecting the five cent per barrel oil tax he had tried in 1929 the one that had led to his impeachment trial. By adding it at the last minute to a boring old procedural bit of legislation, the bill passed. He made a deal with New York mob bosses to bring slot machines to New Orleans and Jefferson Parish. Now in control of the New Orleans police by way of another bill, helpfully signed by O.K. Allen, Huey ordered the cops to look the other way. The slot machines brought in millions of dollars, with 10% going to Huey's political machine. Huey formed shell corporations with his cronies, including the Win or Lose Oil Company. He and his presumed mistress, Alice Lee Grosjean, owned the bulk of the shares. This oil company never drilled for anything, but leased mineral rights on state property. The monopolistic rights to the leases came at zero cost from the governor's office, and the Win or Lose Oil Company made huge profits by selling them to oil prospectors. Soon Huey's Win or Lose shares, which were winning pretty big, were worth millions. Huey had an axe to grind with the city of Baton Rouge. He was disliked by the upper-class folks in town, and the city was the center of the state's anti-Huey faction. After one congressional election in which Huey's candidate lost, the winner staged Huey's political funeral through the streets of Baton Rouge. A little girl sang the popular tune, at least in that city, Huey doesn't live here anymore. He cut the salary of the district attorney of the city to an unmanageable $4,000 a year. He passed a bill giving his state police the power to choose all the deputies for Baton Rouge. He told his aides he would make Baton Rouge another District of Columbia and no longer empowered to govern itself. In response to Huey's new tax on oil, 
Standard Oil fired 3,800 workers from its Baton Rouge refinery to offset the cost of the tax. They threatened to move their refinery from the city. If they got to leave, Huey said in response, they can go to hell and stay there. Within a month, the city council of Baton Rouge, controlled by Huey's people, met and fired 225 city workers. This act, combined with the Standard Oil layoffs and the possibility of the refinery leaving town, got tempers in town way up and a square deal society was formed to do something about Huey. Most of the founders and first members were unemployed refinery workers. The ranks of the Square Deal Society swelled and their agenda moved pretty quickly from demanding a repeal of all Huey's dictatorial laws, especially the five-cent-per-barrel oil tax, to organizing themselves into armed militias and threatening to march on the Capitol. Huey, back in Washington, told reporters that the Square Dealers wouldn't do anything, but 300 of them marched on the Baton Rouge courthouse and barricaded themselves in. Huey had Governor Allen declare martial law for six months. The next day, 350 square dealers gathered at the Baton Rouge airport. Huey had his pal O.K. Allen send in 500 National Guardsmen, who dispersed the square dealers with tear gas. When asked by a reporter about the airport battle, Governor Allen said, I don't wish to discuss anything except fishing. Huey Long's policies and his iron grip on Louisiana was making people feel desperate and powerless, a combination that wasn't going to end well. Huey had made sure to close off every legal avenue his opponents had to get rid of him. The federal investigation into his tax returns was going to take too long and might not even take care of him once and for all. Louisianans finally realized that they were faced with a dictator. As history shows us in these kinds of situations, only one real option remains. On our next episode, we finally come round to the realization that something permanent, if you know what I mean, must be done about Huey Long. Quite a number of citizens of the state realized it too and began making plans to kill their own senator. I think you'll be surprised by who exactly started talking openly about assassination and who ultimately did the deed. Stay tuned for the conclusion of The Most Dangerous Man in America. There's never been anything quite like the office of the President of the United States of America. If you're fascinated by the office and the men who held it, the Presidencies of the United States podcast is a great listen. The material is well-researched and engagingly presented with both the pre-presidential career of each officeholder and how they left their mark on the office. There are also episodes on some of the important other characters who played a role in shaping the American presidency. Check out nerds.historystrainwrecks.com for the Presidency's podcast and how to get started on your journey.